This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host, Morteza Hajizadeh from Critical Theory Channel. Today, I'm honored to be speaking to a very, very special guest, Dr. Michael Roos. Dr. Michael Roos is a British-born Canadian philosopher of science who specializes in the philosophy of biology and uh, and works on on the relationship between science and religion the creation, evolution controversy, and the demarcation problem within science. Um, Dr. Roos today will be talking to us about the wonderful book he published with Oxford University Press called Darwinism as Religion, what lit- literature tells us about evolution. Michael, welcome to New Books Network. Well, it's a great pleasure to be here. I, I know you're in Auckland, and New Zealand is one of my favorite countries. So uh, it's not only fun, it's a bit of a privilege. <laughs> Thank you. So let's talk about, uh, before talking about Darwin as religion, let's talk a little bit about yourself. Uh, you're quite well known in this field, but just for the uninitiated, it would be great if you could briefly introduce yourself and tell us about your field of expertise. Okay, well, my name is Michael Roos. Um I pronounce it's spelt ruse, but I pronounce it ruse. Uh, my headmaster, who hated me for five years, insisted on calling me Michael, what, ruse, but there you go. Uh, I was born in 1940, in other words, just when the Second World War was starting. And uh, my fa- father was a conscientious objector, so I grew up as a Quaker. And uh, Quakers, as you probably know, don't have any creeds, but they have very strong beliefs about that of God in every person. But the thing is, you do a lot of discussion. I mean, students, in other words, the kids in the, in the Quaker organization don't go and learn the creed and those sort of things. They, they get into groups and they talk about, could you be a pacifist in the Second World War? The Second World War was a good war in the sense that Hitler had to be stopped. Uh, my father was conscientious objector. He drove Italian prisoners of war out to the fields where they could work. But another argument is he was freeing up then 
another person to go and fight. So these were the kind of discussions we had. And looking back on it, uh, the reason why I'm, t- I'm telling you this and emphasizing it is I've been a professional philosopher all my life. And I didn't realize that was the training I was getting to become a philosopher, because that's what we did. We sat down and we talked about these things. I mean, for instance, uh, in England at the time, uh, homosexuality was illegal. Uh, so we talked about that. Uh, I mean, and you know, I'm talking about 10-year-olds. And of course, the other thing was capital punishment was practiced, as it still is here in, in Florida. So that's something we talked about. So this was all natural. Now, I went to university to read mathematics. And on the first day or second day, I realized I was a good high school mathematician, but I wasn't a university mathematician. And more than that, I didn't particularly want to be. Fortunately, I was able to get into a sort of a side thing of doing philosophy as well. And it was, you know, love at first, love at first argument. And so I I came to North America. I did work there. And then I got a job at a newly founded university. It, it was new, but it was founded on the back of the Agricultural College and the Vet College. So it was already an up and going establishment. I spent, 50, I spent 35 very happy years there. Now, the one thing, and this sounds like I'm being boastful, and I guess it's true I am. Uh, I always felt as a teenager that I got some talent but I didn't know what it was. I mean, I was good at math. I was good at physics. I did well in O-level uh, history, but I always knew there was something. And it wasn't until my late 20s, and I was writing what they call in, in England and, and Canada, my thesis, and what in America they call your dissertation. And I suddenly realized that I had the ability to write, that I could write up to 3,000 words, day after day after day. And frankly, from about the age of 27, I'm still doing it. You know? So uh, there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of ruse books in, in this world. Uh, so that was the thing I discovered. And that brought, I mean, that shaped my life because then I was able to do that. But the other thing which I think is really important is Thomas Kuhn. Thomas Kuhn published his, uh, what is it, Structure of Scientific Revolutions in 1962. I don't think any philosopher bought into Kuhn's extreme idealism. I, you know, the idea that theories are indifferent, uh, you know, in, what's it, incommensurable and uh, this sort of thing. I, I don't think any of us bought into that. But my generation of philosophers, particularly philosophers of science, bought very much into his what uh, his what order almost saying if you want to do good philosophy of science you've got to do good history of science and good doing good history of science is not enough just reading a couple of popular accounts and i took this very seriously so my first sabbatical was in 1972 and we uh, i and my first wife and a couple of kids <coughs> we went to cambridge cambridge england and uh, i spent the whole year in the manuscripts room, looking at the notebooks of Charles Darwin. Now, why did I do Darwin? Well, on the one hand, I'd done philosophy of biology for my dissertation, and you know get a dissertation. A dissertation topic should be on something which is interesting, which has got some literature, but not too much. any, if you hope that some of that literature is not very good. I mean, that's perfect for, for doing a PhD. Don't do something on, what should we say, human causation or something like that, because it's been done so many, many times. So 
<clears throat> I was into biology, and I've always been a lover of Victorian times. So obviously, Darwin, you know, was a slam dunk. So I spent the time doing that. And um, I just finished writing a short book on the philosophy of biology. Looking back, it's pretty crude, but I and my colleague, my friend, David Hull, we we kind of founded it. And then I switched to history of science, and I ended up writing The Darwinian Revolution, which I published in, what is it, 79. Now, looking back, it wasn't a desperately profound book, but I always say it was the book I wish I'd had 10 years before when I was just starting. Unfortunately, a lot of other people felt that way too. So there you are. So that's what I did. <clears throat> well, that's what I've been doing ever since. Uh, as I say, uh, at the age of... 60, I moved south simply because in those days, Canada had compulsory retirement at 65. And I married one of my second wife, one of my students, and I got three kids. So I couldn't, you know, I couldn't afford to retire. So that, that happened. As it happens, it wasn't a bad move. I mean, you know, it wasn't like, well, shall I say going to the Ukraine or somewhere like that. And, and and so it it led to a very satisfying, you know, last third of my academic career. Uh, I mean, there's many aspects of the states I don't like, like Trump and that sort of thing. I mean, by the way, if you're right wing, then quit this quit this interview right now. I mean, I'm not understand. I'm not a an extreme lefty, but like a lot of intellectuals, uh, I am on the left but very moderately on the left. For instance, I've got a family that I support and all of these things. I, I, I once smoked marijuana at the age of 30, and I said, oh, my God, I'm never doing that again. And I never did. So it, it, now, don't, don't misunderstand me. It wasn't a question of, you know, super self-control. Didn't want to. So that's how I describe myself. Mm. And, uh, but in, in America, you know, for the last 10 years, it's been such a culture war, what with Donald Trump and our governor now. So that's not very pleasant. Uh, but as I say, I found I founded this little program in history of philosophy of science, uh, just an MA program. And uh, I had money attached to my professorship. And we had so much fun. I mean, we go off. Every summer we go for a week. We went to we went to Montpellier in France. Uh, we went to Flanders at the time of the Second World War. I took all my students to the battlefields of the war, uh, and then we went to Oslo and uh, there. So we had a lot of fun, and it was really worthwhile. And let me just end on this note: it was just a little MA program, and my policy, you know, basically I was the person running it, and not much else. Uh, my policy was to let students take any course they wanted in any area they wanted, because I felt it was very much a growing up time. I had one student, for instance, who took several course, several classes in dancing, but then she wrote the most brilliant paper I had of any of them about dance halls in Britain in the Second World War and how, at the beginning, the government didn't want them because they were going to drop bombs on them. But then halfway through the war, they realized a young man coming back from the front for a couple of weeks, what did he want to do? He wanted to hold a girl in his arms. So, you know, from being anti-dance uh, halls, they're very pro-dance halls. Uh, as I say, uh, I think that was a consequence of my saying, look, anything you want to take, 
you do it, okay? I'll count it. But of course, I look upon this time as a growing experience. And I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Education isn't just learning French regular verbs. Education is helping young people grow up. And I felt I was, that was something which was very important to me. And I'm going to end now because I find in my 70s, I lost my faith at about the age of 20. And I thought by the time I'm 70, I better get back on side with God. You, know, you can't, can't afford to make mistakes at my age. But the funny thing is, I, I've, I've not felt any need to get on side with God. But the things of my childhood, Quaker childhood, uh, have become very, very important to me. And teaching is one thing. Uh, and the way I, as I say, the kind of teaching I did, I mean, I'm not Mother Teresa by any means, but uh, my, it was important for me. And I, I've been writing books now on dealing with these issues. I, I wrote a book on hate uh, a, a, you know, two or three years ago, uh, where it's dealing with war and these sorts of things. And that I find very satisfying indeed. Okay, there's a good introduction from it. That was a very good introduction and very, very different and fun to listen to. And by the way, speaking of um, you making peace with God, I actually have a couple of your books here, History, Cambridge History of Atheism. <laughs> That's oh, yes, not a good yes. way to make peace with God. <laughs> yes, but you see, if you read that or if you read some of them, you'll see it is absolutely and completely not a new atheist book. Yeah, It definitely. is not in any yeah. sense polemical. I'm an academic. and I've, I've worked with another chap putting that together. And we wanted, and I think we produce, something that for the next 50 years, if somebody says, oh, my God, I met a, an Iranian, uh, like I'm doing now, uh, I wonder, uh, were, was there any... You know, were there any atheists in the Mideast now or earlier? Well, mm. that was the, that's the whole point of the, putting this together. So mm. the, somebody's got a 20-page essay, which, as it were, can kickstart what they're doing. And yeah. I, I feel very good about that volume um, because what we're doing is we just there's a, just a lot of information there. And mm. I, I didn't realize how much there is. But as I say, it is absolutely the last thing from being a new atheist political yeah, screen. Yeah, yeah, it is yeah. that's a whole point of what we don't want to do. Yeah, exactly. Well, well, speaking of new atheist, well, that's a whole different topic. But anyway, I'll talk to you after the interview. I'm I I, I I'm very keen to talk to you again sometime soon about uh, yes. the history of atheism as well. But anyway, let's talk about this book a little bit. Um, Darwinism, Darwinism is religion. So you, you start the book by talking about a big battle in the 18th century, battle between providence and progress. So can you tell us what it is and what you mean by this? Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, let me again go back a bit. I had not intended to write a book on Darwinism and literature. Uh, I love literature as a personal thing. When I was a kid, I would pray that it would rain. So my mother wouldn't say, put the book down and go out and play. I wanted to sit and read the book. Um, so I was on a sabbatical for a semester in uh, Stellenbosch in South Africa. And that's a beautiful place, part of the wine growing area. I was at an advanced institute and I wanted to work on global warming. Well, the first day I was there, because it's attached to Stellenbosch University, first day I was there, I discovered the whole of the library is in Afrikaans. <laughs> so I, I couldn't read any of the books at all. So I thought, what can I do here 
that won't constrict me. And I thought, why don't I do something on literature? Because if I want a poem, let's say, by Emily Dickinson, or if I, let's say, I want Thomas Hardy's Tessa the D'Urbervilles, I can get it on, you know, online immediately. So that's what I did. And I, I really, uh, so here we are then. I'm not intending to do this book, but I find that I'm going to do it. And uh, as it happens, I, it was one of those serendipitous things that you kind of find, you didn't quite expect it, but it just opens up a whole new dimension. If I say that was the way with my second wife, I, I feel exactly the same sort of thing. The, the first wife, it just didn't bloody work. The second, it did open up. And this writing this book on d literature or Darwinism and literature, because that Darwin's my thing, uh, turned out to be, oh, an incredibly exciting experience. But of course then, okay, so what am I going to do? I mean, okay, here's literature. Here's you know, Charles Dickens and, uh, and Jane Austen and Thomas Hardy, uh, George Eliot on the one side, and here's D Charles Darwin and his Merry Men, Huxley and all of these other, and coming down to the present, coming down to the present and to uh, <coughs> today's evolutionists, what, what on earth do they have to do with Charles Dickens? What would Charles Dickens have to do with them? So, of course, what you're going to do, <coughs> and <coughs> excuse me, remember, I already said, in my, when I was about thirty, I was very much influenced by Thomas Kuhn on the on the idea of the necess necessity. If you're going to do good philosophy of science, you need to do good history of science, and to do good history of science, you've got to do more than read a, a couple of pop accounts. You've got to, you know, get into it, look at the papers, and those sorts of things, which I do. So, as I came then to this problem. Obviously, I wasn't coming, what shall I say, as a tabula rasa. I was coming in with the things I knew, things I'd worked on, and all of those sorts of things. And it's clear, <coughs> excuse me, if you're going to write on Darwin, Charles Darwin, then obviously you're going to look back on where did, where did he come from? And these things. I mean, after all, that's what evolution's all about. You know, I, I, you know, as an evolutionist, I want to know, for instance, why your body is built the kind of way that it is and all of these things. And so I look into the past. So when I was doing, uh, I, when I set out to do Darwinism in literature, I, there's Darwin. And so I was saying, let's go back at least 100 years and see where we are then, and then let's move forward. Uh, uh, so I went back 100 years. Now, I, I, it was a bit of a strange experience because I know the 19th century a hell of a lot better than I know the 18th century. But I did know, and I'd worked on this uh, before, that, there's, that there were, what should I say, metaphysical uh, root metaphors or, or these sorts of things that guided people's thinking. And I knew, I mean, I don't think I was, you know, uh, different or out of out of tune, idiosyncratic. That's the word I'm looking for. When I realized that the 18th century was the century of the Enlightenment, uh, where uh, you know we, we went all the way from everything being church dominated to people having freedom to th of thought, and uh, I knew that what did the, if you were going to put it in one sentence. What was the Enlightenment about? It was about moving on from God, let's say, to the secular world. Uh, I mean, 
not there were a hell of a lot of people who weren't secular uh, and that sort of thing. And what did that mean? It meant moving on from the idea of God in charge, and that's called providence. The idea of us in charge, and that's progress. Where we, you know, you say, look, nobody's going to help us. Get off your butt and and get to work and see if you can improve things. And that was very much the kind of philosophies I found in uh, the 18th century. I knew something about it when I started, because as I say, I've been a historian of science all my life anyway. Uh, so obviously the first place I was going to start then was uh, with that distinction. Now, I'm going to write on Darwin and literature, but so obviously as I go back to the 18th century, I'm going to be looking at... Uh, were there evolutionists, as it happens? Yes, there were. And what did they think? And is there anywhere in literature that either they or others were working on this, working these ideas out? And so conversely, did this affect the way that they thought about evolution? And did the way that they thought about evolution reflect the kind of stuff that was being uh, written? Well, it turned out terrific. I mean, one of the first... Uh, one of the first uh, uh, evolutionist was Diderot, uh, the Frenchman. And, okay, he actually endorsed a kind of evolution. I said, yes, but it was this chap still working within the church? Was he still a good Catholic and molding it that way? Or had he, as it were, thrown out his Catholicism? So then he was in a secular world and he could turn more to the philosophy of progress. And of course, the progress at some level, lends itself to the whole evolution debate because what's progress? It's a history of things getting better, going all the way from the blob to the, you know, the mammal, or what they used to say, monad to man. Well, it turned out that Diderot, when he wasn't being speculating about evolution, was writing pornographic novels about French nuns. Uh, so, you know, it was uh, French lesbian nuns. So, yeah, it was pretty clear this guy took uh, religion pretty lightly and that sort of thing. So that was the sort of thing I was doing, looking at what he was writing and not just looking at what he was writing about evolution, but more generally. And then did this tie into the kind of thinking he was doing about evolution? And it was pretty clear thinking about evolution, he wasn't going to be in any sense handicapped by religion and thinking, oh my goodness, how do I fit this in with six days of creation? That's all. Of course, the other big evolutionist was Charles Darwin's grandfather, Erasmus Darwin, in England. And yeah, he lent himself to literature because, you know, he wrote, he wrote poetry. And not only did he write poetry, he put his, he put his, um, he put his, evolutionary ideas into his poetry and, and he was quite explicit that the, the the philosophy that was guiding him was progress he says that he says here's evolution isn't evolution the obvious thing that's happening in the, the biological world because we know that progress is happening in you know the intellectual the secular world and so he links them up very clearly and his critics, when they were going after him, uh, as often as not, were going after progress as going after his evolution. If they could destroy, destroy progress, they were, you know, halfway there. So this was, this was the stuff I worked on you know, at the first, first chapter. But understand, at some level, this was a prolegomenon 
to the 19th century, which, of course, is where the action is going to take place. And and you talk about several authors in the book. I'm, I'm curious to know, for example, about the writings of William Godwin and also Erasmus Darwin, was related to Charles Darwin. How do you reflect these connections between evolution and progress? Very briefly. Well, as, I, as I said, I mean, what is evolution? Evolution is going from blobs, let's say from fish, to, uh, to, to you or to me. And, uh, okay, I don't know about you, but I like to think that there's progress when we got to Michael Roots. I'll, I'll leave you on one side. You make the decision yourself. But, no, seriously. So, I mean, at one level, it seems obvious that there's progress in evolution. I mean, you're going to hear me say, but at one level, because it's more complex than that. But at the other level, uh, so you've got that. But of course, this, as all of the early evolutionists said, you know, then why wouldn't we have the same thing happening in the biological world? And they would say, oh, yes, we do. Don't forget, <clears throat> we're at the time when they're starting into morphology, they're starting to do embryology. And more than that, they're starting to uncover the fossil record. All, in other words, they're starting to get some you know, empirical information that they could start to feed in. I mean, you take embryology, which of course, on the one hand is developmental, but on the other hand, it throws up some very interesting things. For instance, you can have two organisms which are very, very different as adults but their embryos are indistinguishable. Now, how can that be? I mean, okay, oh, that's really interesting, but is there a reason why? I mean, why would this happen like that? And of course, then you start to do morphology and you find that a lot of mammals have the same kind of bone structure, bone structure that we have, except they're using the bones in very different ways. And sometimes they're pretty much redundant. Uh, so these are the sorts of questions that were being thrown up, as I say, as people were doing the work. And, and certainly paleontology was something they were starting to dig up fossils and starting to think, oh, yeah, the fossils come in in a certain order. And the ones lower down, are kind of more primitive. Often they look like embryos, and the ones up above are more, let's say, sophisticated. And so by you know the late 19th, 18th century, this was happening. Now, Condorcet, you know, he wasn't really into it, but he was certainly very much into the whole progress thing. And so at a certain level, he's, you know, he's a side supporter of what's going on. He's certainly in the same spirit. And... Uh... You talk about William Paley as well. How does the natural theology, his natural theology, reflect yeah. the other side of the battle, which is yeah. providence? Well, okay. Again, this is really interesting. And you have to go back to the 16th century and Henry VIII, the chap who had all those wives. Henry VIII, uh, he, was, he, he was married to a Spanish, his first wife, a, a Spanish woman, a Catherine of Aragon. And they had one daughter, uh, who was Mary, uh, but no sons. And he was desperate to have a son. So he got himself a girlfriend, Anne Boleyn. And he wanted to marry, he wanted to drop Catherine of Aragon and marry Anne Boleyn. So he could try for sons there. Well, he went to the Pope and Catherine of Aragon was Spanish. And of course, Spain was pretty much the all-powerful nation on the continent at the time. So the Pope said no. So Henry said, oh, 
up yours, as it were. I'm taking my country home. And he did. And that meant he broke from Catholicism and made us Protestant. But notice, we were Protestant, the Brits, not because of intellectual things which happened, let's say, in the north of Germany, thanks to Martin Luther. We were Protestant for political reasons. And uh, so Eng England was had Protestant, but they had to then <clears throat> start to build their ideology to make it all work. And by the end of the, uh, the, end of the 16th century, the 1500s, uh, already Britain was becoming a land of, of uh, in industry and manufacturing. So in other words, what, the, what they were looking for was a theology which tied into this. In other words, they were looking very much for natural theology as opposed to revealed theology, which is the, the, which is the theology of faith. And of course, Luther, for instance, was very much uh, into uh, revealed theology uh, because he said, you know, you, you get it from reading the Bible, sola scriptura. And he actually said famously that reason is a whore. Uh, so in other words, it's faith, faith, faith. Whereas in Britain, it was the other way around. They were looking for reasons to be Christian, which tied, which made, which was comfortable with the way that England was becoming so industrialized. So this was natural theology, and that meant things like the argument from design, which of course is very old. It goes back to Plato. Uh, argument from design was perfect for the kind of theology and, as it were, that the Brits were building. So for the English, natural theology was always very important. And, and of course, the, the, the most important argument in natural theology is the argument from design. Everything looks designed. It, why? Because there's a designer, uh, you know, as I say, you know, the eye looks like a telescope. Uh, why? Because the great optician in the sky <laughs> made the eye modeling it on a telescope. So uh, we come to the end of the 17th century, uh, 18th century, sorry. Uh, so we get to about, you know, 1900, uh, sorry, 1800. So we're going, from the, we're going from the 18th century to the 19th century. So around about uh, 1900, you've got the argument from design going. And Paley uh, wasn't a particularly innovative thinker, but he was a great textbook writer. That's what he was doing, writing. And he wrote this book on natural theology, which uh, you know is about the argument from design and that sort of thing. In other words, he was writing the kind of thing that you could give to students. You know, you want to learn about this. So he wrote in a very popular way, in a in a comfortable way, uh, and that sort of thing. So uh, everybody grew up on this, including Charles Darwin, who went to Cambridge University as a you know as a student, and <clears throat> what he got there was. Paley, Paley, Paley the whole time. So, <laughs> excuse me. So on the one hand, you've got <laughs> on the one hand you've got progress, and on the other hand you've got natural theology. And so, these are the ideas which are important as we go into the nineteenth century. Now, okay, then you start to pick it up. I don't mean there was nothing, but. <laughs> so that we don't spend the rest of our life just talking about this. Uh, we have to move forward to the middle of the century where things start to pick up in a big way. And they do because on the one hand, there's this book called Vestiges in the Natural History of Creation, anonymously authored, but we now know 
by the Scottish publisher, Robert Chambers, which caused a huge row. And you, you get stuff in, in books about him. A Disraeli starts writing his novels and they're joking about it. But most importantly, Tennyson, the, the, you know, the all-important Victorian poet, picked up on, on Chambers and actually used his ideas in his famous, uh, his famous poem, In Memoriam which was a long poem that he wrote uh, in memory of a friend of his who died when they were uh, in, their, in their 20s. He didn't finish it until, uh, until 1850. And he, what he said was, the friend, it's okay. The friend was obviously a person more talented, more important than those who were living, but he came too early. So and he, he tied this in with evolution. We're going up and we're not only here, but we're going to go higher and higher. And the friend was one of the high ones and then, as it were, wiped out. So Tennyson says, before his time. So in other words, we get this famous poem with evolutionary ideas. I mean, let's say the Queen, Queen Victoria, when Albert died about 1860, she said, and you know, people understood what she was saying, is immemorial was one of those things which made me, help me get over this crisis because it was optimistic. It was saying, you know, she could say the same about Albert. He was just a, an exceptional human being who, as it were, came early, too early uh, for what's going on. So we're getting these ideas as we go through the 1850s. Now, at the same time, we know that Darwin, uh, who was born in 1809, and then he went to, uh, well, he went to, uh, first of all, he went to Edinburgh to train to be a doctor, and he hated that because the operations, he didn't have anaesthetics and that sort of thing. So then he went to Cambridge in order to become a clergyman, which is a nice job for somebody with a lot of money, and he came from a very wealthy family. So in other words, a clergyman was a respectable job, but if you got a curate, you didn't have to do a lot of work. So that's what he was training for. But then Darwin fell amongst the scientists and really enjoyed this. So he got the offer to go on board HMS Beagle, which ended up five years going around South, South America. And uh, he was kind of ship's naturalist or something like that. So then Darwin discovers evolution, not only uh, the, uh, evolution was known, but discovers natural selection in the, in the second half of the 1830s. But he sits on it for 20 years because he knows that if he publishes this, he, you know, he's going to be kicked out of the professional scientific community. And that's the last thing he wants. And he doesn't publish until 1859. As we know, he publishes when he gets this essay from a, an unknown naturalist with the same ideas. And so then he pushes and publishes uh, on the origin of species. So as it were, on the one hand, you, you've got the origin of species, but on the other hand, you've got literary people who are picking up on evolutionary ideas and, and working with them. And you've got to remember, by certainly by 1860, evolution was a lot less threatening an idea than it would have been in 1830. Uh, by you know, uh, 1860, uh, England was the supreme country in the world, the empire. It was, you know, it was top dog. So, you know, if they, they're not feeling insecure or threatened or anything like this. And so taking on evolution is, yeah, it's an exciting idea. And a lot of people take it on, including a lot of clergymen. So uh, 
one of the most interesting is is the Reverend Baden Powell, who is the father of Baden Powell, the founder of scouting, this the scoutmaster. And Baden Powell in 1850, 1855, you know, five six years before Darwin, is saying evolution clearly evolution proves that God is even more magnificent than we thought because God didn't just have to sort of sit down and create everything quickly. That was already done. What he did was do it through unbroken law, which obviously is a great deal more, what should we say, a, 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 a great deal more difficult, but also demonstrates the existence of God. So when The Origin is published, it, there's already a place. And this is where I see we're going to draw to a close for a moment. This is where uh, the literary people, the poets and the novelists start to get interested. Mm -hmm. Now, in, in your book, you talk about some concerns about the possibility of moral, moral life. And you particularly talk about one work, Nemesis of Faith, which was written by James Anthony Fruit, if I'm pronouncing the name correctly. Yeah. Can you talk about this work and these concerns about the possibility of moral, moral life? Was it instigated yes. by the works of Darwin? No, I, I, as I remember, uh, Nemesis of Faith, doesn't it come out a year earlier than The Origin? I mean, it's certainly not inspired by The Origin. I think what's going on there is we're at the middle of the century, and I've explained this. Uh, England is at its great power very successfully and everything like that. Now, England had been, uh, it still is, uh, a church, a, a, a country with official religion, the Church of England, the Anglicans. I mean, for instance, uh, King Charles has to be a member of the Anglican Church, for instance, even today. But so, but so here we are then, a country which is essentially religious. Uh, up north, they've got the Methodists and that sort of thing. And by the time we get to the middle of the 19th century, 1850 or so, a lot of people were finding that the church no longer spoke to them they, in the sense that they didn't want to go to church on Sundays and that sort of thing. They found that it, it, they could enjoy their Sundays by having a cup of tea and reading the paper. Uh, so that sort of thing. So I think what was happening is a lot of people then, particularly the more sensitive ones, were saying, oh, my goodness, uh, what about faith? What about belief? Is it OK to give it up? Now, as I say, most people were quite happy to do that. I mean, like my wife. My wife is totally uninterested in religion. Uh, she, you know, as far as she's concerned, Abraham and Isaac might be, you know, gay lovers. Uh, I say, no, it's not Abraham and Isaac. It's David and Jonathan. But she just is. I mean, the point I'm making is she doesn't have any belief, but she doesn't care. Whereas a lot of people, I think I belong to that group, uh, don't have any belief, but we do care. And we do, I won't say worry about it more, but we do think about it a lot and that sort of thing. Now, I think what Nemesis of Faith is doing is dealing with this sort of thing. Somebody who grows up in a fairly conventional Anglican sort of way and then discovers that somehow it isn't working, but they, they're feeling maybe on the one hand liberated, but on the other hand guilty or worried about this. And so that's what Nemesis of Faith is all about. So, you know, it's it's about the existential angst that people are having, quite apart, <coughs> excuse me, quite apart from Darwin. So, as I say, Darwin is going to have an effect, but it, Darwin's not starting it. 
And uh, Darwin had an effect. Well, in 1865, the novelist and poet Thomas Hardy wrote a wrote a poem. But it wasn't published till many years later. But uh, he wrote a poem where Hap, where he says, "If God were bad, I could live with that. I could say, okay, God, you're bad, and I'm going to fight against you. But I know what's going on. What I cannot handle is a God who's indifferent." doesn't care about whether things go right or things go wrong, which, of course, at a certain level, Darwin is inculcating, because he's saying everything happens according to blind law. There's no, as it were, at some level, no meaning behind it, at least as far as Darwin's concerned. And so, as, he, as, as, uh, as Hardy spots, it doesn't mean to say that God is against us. It means that God is totally indifferent to us. And that's really hard to handle. So these are the sorts of issues that a lot of people were sort of having, particularly after Darwin, where they saw it wasn't so much that Darwin was anti-religion, as it were, he's undermining religion, because making religion at some level irrelevant or something like that. Now, I want to say, even back then, there were people who were new atheists, if you like, uh, who really felt that God does not exist, the idea is a bad idea, and used Darwin that way. At the same time, there were a lot of people who were religious who said evolution, in fact, is a very important part of it because now we see that God didn't have to do it all by hand, as it were, uh, in six days. He could do it through unbroken law. Now, don't forget, we're at a time where you, know, you don't make cloth anymore by individuals working the thing like that. It's all done by factories. And of course, factory things, I mean, English felt that these were very good things, that, that why is England so, you know, so powerful? Because of the fact that so much is done by factories rather than done by hand. So a, a creation of the world, which is done, as it were, by factories, namely through unbroken law, is going to be superior to a creation of the world, which has to be done by hand. So as I say, there were a lot of people who, for whom uh, religion, I'm sorry, Darwin, was a great, a, a great plus. And so what we find are novelists starting to work with this sort of thing. Now, okay, natural selection is Darwin's main mechanism, this struggle for existence, uh, fight, and the winner wins and passes on, and we go that way. And so you do find novels which pick up on this. Uh, New Grub Street by, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, anyhow, New Grub Street, uh, 1890 uh, or something like that. Uh, it's all about two, two writers, one of whom is very good, the other's not very good at all. And the, the thing is, we see how the one who's very good, however, isn't prepared to make any compromises to fit in, and so ends up losing, whereas the one who says, look, I'm not a great writer, I'm not a great novelist, but I'm interested in literature, I've got skill, ends up by being the editor of an important literary magazine, like the, uh, let's say, like the New York Review of Books, and very successful. So this is New Grub Street, where Gissing, George Gissing, uh, where he, we see Darwinian ideas being worked out. Now, as I'm sure you know, Darwin had a, a secondary mechanism which comes out of sec out of natural selection, which is called sexual selection, where the, with natural selection, as it were, 
it's the fight to the death. You know, naked mud, naked mud wrestling, and only one wins, and that's it. Whereas sexual selection <clears throat> is competition for mates, so people don't die, but at the same time, people, as it were, you know, some are successful and some aren't. So, for instance, I mean, Darwin says, "Why does the peacock have a wonderful tail?" Because the females choose the most beautiful tail and breed from that. And so sexual selection then is all about choice there. And that was, as you can imagine, that was very much appreciated uh, by, um, by novelists. And George Eliot, in a last major novel, uh, Daniel Deronda, deals with justice, with you know, people, particularly a young woman, having to make choices about, am I going to marry this one who's, let's say, got a lot of money but not a very nice person, or am I going to marry this one who's a really nice chap, but you know, doesn't have any money at all? So sexual selection. So here, as I say, sexual selection becomes really important. So, <clears throat> excuse me, on the one hand then, okay, you've almost got two, we've seen two things then. Uh, George Gissing, natural selection works, and that's okay. Uh, George Eliot, Sexual selection works, and that's okay. Then Thomas Hardy, who, as I say, is worried about whether there's any meaning. And then, of course, Thomas Hardy in the 1870s starts writing novels and writes novels until about 1900 when he goes back to poetry. And you get to say, I think, a very great novel like Tess of the D'Urbervilles uh, about this young woman who grows up and life is pretty mean. She ends up by being hanged in the last uh, paragraph but one, the penultimate chapter, uh, the penultimate paragraph of the book. But what he's dealing with, Hardy, again, is what he's talking about in his poem, the kind of indifference uh, of everything, and that Darwin sort of pushes this, that it's all indifferent. Now, this, in a nice way, swings us back to the 18th century and what we were talking about, providence versus progress. You see, there were a fair number of evolutionists, starting with Erasmus Darwin, who thought that evolution uh, evolution confirms progress, monad to man, from the blob to the, the human being sort of thing. Uh, but you get somebody like Hardy who says, no, I don't think it shows progress. We may There may be what we call progress, but it's not necessary. It just, it just happens. And it could well be that, you know, in the next generation, we get wiped out and other things work. I mean, you know, he, he didn't have COVID, but Hardy would have said, if it turned out that COVID wiped every human being off the earth, yeah, it would be very progressive, but it would be perfectly in, in tune with Darwinian ideas. There's no meaning and no necessity for progress. And in fact, going back to Darwin, he struggled a bit with it, and there's passages in the origin which look very progressive. But he really, really realized that evolution is not progressive in that sort of sense. It, we may get what we want to call progress, but it's not guaranteed, and we don't we don't find progress out there. It's something we put on it. Now, other evolutionists, for instance, the famous German evolutionist Ernst Haeckel, was completely committed to progress. And he has the so-called biogenetic law, where he says ontogeny, which means, you know, individual development, recapitulates phylogeny, the 
development from the shellfish to the human. And of course, what somebody like Heckel is saying, if you look at if you look at <coughs> ontogeny, individual growth, then what happens is we see growth. You start with the acorn and you end with the oak tree. You start with the tadpole and you end with the the frog. So we see progress happening. And so ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. So we're going to see we're going to see progress in phylogeny, where we go, let's say, from, excuse me, we go from invertebrates, we go from, we go from the trilobite, you see my tattoo, my wife wouldn't speak to me for a week after, after I got that, and my five children were so mad, because I was the first one to get it, their dad got a, a tattoo that I mean several of them have got tattoos now but I was number one <laughs> so anyhow as I say no wonder my kids have all got Oedipal complexes and, and trouble with their status against their father uh, but anyhow as I say um, there we, there we are. Uh, you've got then the whole wrestling with progress and Darwin comes to see particularly after the origin that there's no progress yes he thinks that we are superior, but he doesn't think that nature tells us that. It's something, as it were, an interpretation that we put on that. So what I'm saying is you still get this really interesting dichotomy. It's no longer progress versus providence. It's progress or no progress, as it were. And so after Darwin, there's a lot of discussion about is evolution progressive? And let's face it, it still goes on today that a lot of evolutionists want to say, I mean, like Stephen Jay Gould, uh, the, you know, the American paleontologist, he says, no, progress is just an illusion. Whereas, interestingly, Richard Dawkins believes in progress. <laughs> Richard Dawkins not only believes that, it, that evolution leads to, to human beings, he believes that evolution leads to Oxford professors, and particularly Oxford professors who are new atheists. So, you know, uh, he's, got, he's got it all coming and going. So, as I say, this is still a debate. And this is something which I think, to pick up on our major theme, this is something we see people, as I say, in literature, trying to work it out. Obviously, Thomas Hardy is the big one, the poems, and then his novels. I mean, his novels like, as I say, Tessa the Durbervilles, a wonderful young woman who, as it were, by by forces of nature, ends up being hanged. Now, you know, why should that happen to her? And so we see those particular sorts of issues uh, being so important. I mean, H.G. Wells and his, uh, his novel, The Time Machine, where this chap goes back in time and finds all the, but then he goes forward in time. No, he goes forward in time and he finds that humans are into two, you know, broken up into two groups. Uh, and one group lives above the uh, above the, the earth as don't doesn't do anything. And then there's those who live in caves beneath the earth who do a lot, but they eat the ones above the earth. So uh, what... Wells is dealing with there, again, is what's going to happen in the future? Not necessarily, it's not necessarily going to be any better and could well be a lot worse. So, as I say, this whole notion of progress, and what makes this particularly interesting is by the end of the 19th century, a lot of people 
nothing to do with evolution, are starting to worry about ideas of progress because you're getting big cities with slums, with with uh, crime level and these sorts of things. And particularly in America, you can see in America, you've got all these immigrants coming in and uh, it, the whole place is totally alien. So what we're getting then is a lot of people, as it were, without even talking about evolution, are getting very worried. Or is there really progress? Because we we see, you know, the big cities with lots of slums, with hunger, uh, illness, all of these sorts of things. Don't talk to me about progress. And so, as I say, you find somebody like H.G. Wells reflecting this in his novels. So it it gets picked up again and again and again. So now, if yeah. I can keep going, yeah, sure. It doesn't mean to say yeah, it doesn't mean to say it's all negative. And of course, what we get are <clears throat> some people um, trying to. What should I say? Reinvigorate uh, evolution uh, with religion, because religion is Christian religion clearly makes humans uh, number one. And can we put this together? The most famous case of doing this is Henri Bergson, the Frenchman who published Creative Evolution in uh, 1905, English translation in uh, maybe 1907, uh, English translation in 1911 where he's got, he's what they call a vitalist, and he's got the idea of this sort of vital force, which is all important. And he wants to argue there is evolution, certainly, but thanks to the vital forces, it's progressive evolution, and things get better. Now, this gets picked up by the novelists. And most interesting one to do this is the English novelist at the beginning of the 20th century, D.H. Lawrence. And his probably people think his, his greatest novels are the two in a pair, The Rainbow and Women in Love. And he's dealing very thoroughly with the whole idea of evolution behind it and progressive how things get better. And he's got the idea of the alarm vital, but he calls it blood. Blood comes gushing and that sort of thing. I should say also, D.H. Lawrence has some rather naughty bits where he argues that anal intercourse frees us from all the old restraints and makes for a better world. Uh, but anyhow, so as I say, we're getting these things reflected in the novels that people are writing. Uh, but the, what I think is interesting is as we go on, Darwinism or evolution, uh, as I say, gets molded into different ways. And uh, Creative evolution obviously owes a lot to Darwin, but it's not really Darwin's theory. Uh, <clears throat> and what we're seeing is the novelists, uh, poets too, are picking up on these things and trying to express them. So it, this what make this what makes it really interesting, as I say, is that you've not only <laughs> you've not only got, as it were, novelists reflecting Darwin and those sorts of things, but we also have novelists who are reflecting changes, growths, differences, and all of those sorts of things. So, as I say, uh, this is what I think made my whole study uh, very, very interesting. But let me go back and remind listeners, I wasn't in this study because I've got a particularly, you know, wonderful, uh, as it were, nose for what's going on. I was in this study because I don't read Afrikaans. And so I couldn't do the work I intended to do on... on uh, you know, global warming and that sort of thing. So I had to find something that I could do which didn't need this. And so writing on Darwin and literature, as I said before, was 
that was an easy one to do because it meant I could get, you know, let's say women in love and the rainbow. I could get it in seconds, you know, uh, off the Internet. And so my work was very much a almost fortuitous. But then when I got into it, I discovered what a fantastic topic it was. So I, let me say, I'm incredibly pleased that it all did work out that way. But it wasn't, as it were, that I've got this superior knowledge which led me into it. Uh, but then I discovered, and that, of course, is what makes a scholarship really interesting, is where, I, as I say, writing a book is as much a learning experience as, as it were, teaching experience for others. Because if you take seriously writing a book, you've got to do research on it. And you often find you say, oh, my goodness, it wasn't like that, was it? It was very different. And then, of course, you write the book. You go back to the beginning and rewrite the book, pretending that you knew this all along. And you go, go that. I mean, I'll give you an example. About 10 years ago, I wrote a book on, the Gaia, on Gaia, the idea of the Earth as an organism. And I wrote this book all about whether Gaia is falsifiable, the debates, is Gaia falsifiable in a Popperian sense, and these things. I got to the end of the book, I read it. I said, oh my God, this is the most goddamn awful, boring book I've ever read in my whole life. And then I said, ah, but one thing I've discovered is the general public loved Gaia and the scientists hated it. Why don't I write, recast my book as that problem. So that's what I did. I went back to the beginning, stated that as a problem, and then, as it were, rewrote it using bits and pieces of what I got down, but pretending, as it were, that I'd had this problem all the way. So as I say, <clears throat> I, I, what I'm saying is, I think that writing is as much a nonfiction, is as much a creative process as writing fiction. And I very much found that working on this book on Darwin and literature, led me to insights, if I can use this phrase, uh, which I had absolutely, absolutely no idea about. I mean, to give you one example, well, I, I, it's in the book, I wish, only wish I put it in the preface, is that men wouldn't let women do science. Thomas Henry Huxley would not let women take his science courses. So it looks like, but then you look at the literature, and there's a hell of a lot more women Involved in it, George Eliot, uh, 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 Emily Dickinson, the poet, uh, uh, a lot, you know, and a lot of others who are all very much working on this. Edith Wharton, the novelist in in uh, America, uh, a fair number of women. And so, one of the very exciting things that I think Darwinism and literature showed to me was that women were always active, but they were active in a different sorts of ways. I mean. You take science. On the one hand, you've got the scientists. And on the other hand, you've got the science museums and people who write for the newspaper. Now, scientists are after the facts, if you like, and theories. But science museums can be very, very good. But they're not trying to find new discoveries. They're thinking of ways, creative ways, in which they can present these ideas to the public. And we know that some museums are very, very good at doing this, and others aren't very good. I mean, interestingly, <clears throat> one of the best I ever came across was the Creationist Museum in uh, in, in uh, just south of Cincinnati in, in Kentucky. Now, I, I'm not a creationist, but my goodness me, the way that they present it with the little diagrams and the little models and all of the absolutely brilliant. And so, I, I, I mean... I, I what I want to say is, uh, give them 
credit for being good science presenters, even if they're not scientists. And so that was very much my feeling as I wrote my book, is give the novelists and the poets full credit for what they're doing, even though they're not, as it were, out there counting butterflies and that sort of thing. And that, as I say, is one of the most exciting discoveries. Although, I oh my God, I wish I'd said that in my preface. It wasn't until I'd finished it, it was published, I suddenly said, oh my God, oh my God, I missed one of the most important things that I should made much of, that this was a field where women could get involved uh, as much, if not more than men. Whereas, and this was an interesting contrast to science, where not only did women not get involved, but they were actively kept out by leading evolutionists like Thomas Henry Huxley. So, as I say, these things, that's why uh, writing nonfiction is as much a creative thing as writing fiction, because you've got to tell a good story. You've got to have a beginning, a middle, and the end. You've got to have things which come out and that sort of thing. Or, I mean, if I say creative, I don't mean making it up. No, I'm not talking about that. What I'm saying is knowing how to present it and that sort of thing. Rather, I mean, very much, as I say, rather like museums. I'm not a scientist, but what I'm trying to do is take the ideas of science and, as it were, work something from that. And that's what I think a great museum does. It takes the ideas of science and then works from that in presenting them and showing connections. And that's, I mean, as I say, that's what makes the Creationist Museum in uh, in Kentucky so such a good museum, so powerful, because they are so good at presenting these ideas. Uh, the, I mean, by the time I finished, I almost said, oh, my God, you know, I think Darwin was wrong. We were created in six days. But you know, anyhow, as, as I say, uh, uh, those were the, some of the sorts of things which came out in this project. So, I mean, again, these were sorts of things which made the project not only meaningful for me, but a huge amount of fun to work on. I mean, if I mean, sometimes you have to work on things because it's a duty. But, you know, if you're lucky, you're working on things because, oh, my God, it's so interesting to do this and to present these ideas. So there you go. And uh, one thing about your book is that you not only talk about some British authors, but you also talk about American authors and their reaction to Darwin. For yes. example, you well, talk about American you... transcendentalists. Yes, Whitman, uh, but yeah. if you notice, uh, the book at the beginning of the book, the first chapter, I deal w just generally, and I, I, I deal with some French people, particularly uh, uh, Diderot and uh, others like that. Uh, but then uh, after the first chapter, I say, okay, now I'm going to deal with people who speak English, Anglophones, uh, partly because my, like all English people, I have a lot of trouble with languages. But secondly, I got a tale to tell. And if somebody wanted to write on uh, evolution and literature in France or in Germany, go ahead. But I, you know, apart from anything else, I just didn't know that. I mean, so uh, I would have, I would have found it difficult, if not impossible, uh, to write that sort of thing. Whereas I, as I've said, I love literature in English, and I read an awful lot. I, I, I didn't read as much. Uh, American literature, as I read British literature, that's true. But of course, I knew you know, some American literature. I mean, one knows about uh, Emily Dickinson, for instance, the poet. I mean, I know so much about Emily Dickinson. 
her birthday was December 10th. And my daughter, who's called Emily, was born on December 10th. So because she was born on December 10th, we called her Emily, which, you know, and it was, as it were, in, a, in many respects, it was a mark of our appreciation and respect for Emily Dickinson. So I certainly, I certainly was not blind about American literature. I just, I just wasn't as up on it as I was about English literature and that sort of thing. So yes, I did. And uh, an American might well say, well, I think you should have done uh, more uh, on American literature, to which I'd say, well, you write the book then, you know, you write the book. Uh, yes, maybe I did spend a lot of time on the English, but that's because I know them. Uh, certainly, I talked about the Americans, but I don't know Melville like I know. I mean, I've read, you know, the thing about Wales, but Moby Dick, but I don't know Melville like I know uh, Charles Dickens. And so... You know, the cobbler should stick to his last. I, I wrote what I knew about. And don't forget, this was a project I didn't expect to have. And so to a certain extent, I said, OK, I'm going to enjoy myself. I, I mean, Stellenbosch was a wonderful place to be and uh, all of this. And we got meals and everything. A really terrific place to be. But as I said, OK, here I am with a project, as it were, I didn't know I was going to have, but one I, I chose because I think it's interesting and fun. I, I'm going to, this is going to be my project and it's going to reflect what I find interesting as much as anything else. And that's very much what the, the book is. I, I, I should say, I don't look back on the book and say, oh my goodness, I wish I'd, I, well, uh, I wish I'd found some New Zealand authors or something like that. Uh, and that sort of thing. There is the one chap who went down there to work uh, on a farm or something like that. But anyhow, as I say, uh, I wrote on what interested me, but it doesn't mean to say I didn't miss things, namely women. I mean, I talked about women. I talked about a huge amount about women in the book. And I, I think I, get, I can fairly say I gave women equal treatment. In, I, there may be more, more, more men, but I, I mean, my final chapter is about the English novelist uh, Ian McEwan, who's, uh, who's pro-Darwinian, and then the French novel, the American novelist who wrote Lila and uh, Marilyn Robinson, who's an American, and a very keen, she's a Presbyterian, a keen Christian. So yes, the answer is, I did not, did not in any sense ignore um, Americans, but I, I, I would be perfectly candid in saying uh, my knowledge of English literature is a lot better. And frankly, this was my project. I was going to do what I wanted to do uh, rather than what you think I should have done. So there you go. I mean, I, you know, you don't do as much work as I do without having a certain arrogance about yourself. You know, <laughs> you have to have a certain, you know, I mean, I, I'm arrogant about my ability to write, for instance. Although I remember talking to Stephen Jay Gould, who was a friend at once. He said, yes, Mike, we've both got this ability, but do understand nobody's going to take us seriously because we write so much, they think it must be second rate. And I mean, you know, I, I wouldn't say this that's a complete, misunderstanding. But I think that people like Gould and myself, who do write quickly, and a broader thing, I think we, I would, and I know Steve Gould would have said this, I think we capture truths or understandings that somebody who works on a very narrow, you know, little bit of work or something like that, 
uh, I think we we're able to pick up you know broader things. So uh, I wouldn't put us down. I would, but I would certainly admit that we don't do the as it were tight technical stuff. Uh, you know, you can't write th- three thousand words a day, uh, day after day, and be doing you know really t- as I say really tight technical stuff. You've got to be dealing with broader themes as they come out, as I do in the book that you that we're talking about. So one question I have is is Darwin's ideas did did sorry Darwin's works did Darwin's works raise any questions about the issues of race and class and if so how was it reflected in the literature of the time well, well yes good questions the answer is yes they did and if you read the descent of man in many respects Darwin is a very conventional Englishman uh, namely that whites are superior to blacks and the English is superior to everybody else. So uh, there's certainly a lot of that in in The Descent of Man. However, if you not only read some of the comments in The Descent of Man, but also in his correspondence, which incidentally has just, the final volume of, of 30 has just come out. So we know a lot about Darwin through his correspondence. If you read these, then you find that he's significantly more, shall we say, forward-looking than one might expect. Of course, don't forget, Darwin came from a family which was violently, absolutely against slavery, which was not a necessary comment, a belief in England. Particularly in the north of England, they depended very much on cotton, cotton, which, of course, they got from the southern slave states. So, you know, a lot of people weren't 100% against slavery. Uh, uh, so we've got the Darwin family who are. And certainly, if you look at what some of the things that Darwin says, it's clear that he thinks that it could well be that we have a society where uh, people are all pretty much equal. One very revealing thing is that he says... Uh, when they were, uh, when he was on board HMS Beagle, they went down to the bottom of, of uh, South America, uh, which is the area known as T- Tierra del Fuego, which has inhabitants, which are about the savagest savage that you could possibly get. Uh, and uh, on a previous voyage, the captain, Fitzroy, had uh, taken three, four uh, of Tierra del Fuego back to England. And for a couple of years, three years, educated them and all of these things. Only three were still living when they took them back to Terra del Fuego. Uh, but Darwin says, I am amazed or I was amazed at the extent to which these Terra del Fuegans had, you know, developed the, the culture, uh, English culture, and picked it up. So in other words, Darwin, Darwin certainly had a, a lot of, if not all, of the prejudices of the time. But at the same time, he opened up, I think, uh, places for people to explore, which, of course, they have done since. And uh, the sorts of things that they do is, did, does natural selection make for people being different? The answer is yes. We know, for instance, the reason why we're white and Africans tend to be black is because they get a lot of sunshine in a way that we don't get. So they need, they need the black to protect the melanin, whereas we need the white to be able to pick up and get, you know, vitamin C, is it, or something like that. So we know a lot of, about these things, but uh, obviously that has absolutely nothing to do with intelligence. So, as I say, at the same time, uh, Darwin, I think, 
not only is quite a racist, as he sometimes seems to be, but certainly Darwin opened up all sorts of avenues to show that racism is simply not well taken. I mean, it's not only immoral, it's simply bad science. And I think Darwin would have been very pleased at that. And another question, where with, with, with the publication of Darwin's works, there was, let's say, religion was was put on the question the ideas of morality and everything so with with that gone did did religion somehow manage to fill that gap in the absence of let's say morality or do the authors you talk about put forth any alternative any sort of guide for no, morality? I, I, I think i think religion as it were had enough problems of its own what with declining populations in churches, attendance at churches, and a lot of these sorts of things. And of course, as I say, a lot of religious people were not against evolution, uh, they, but they did want to see how evolution would impinge on their beliefs and to what extent one might need to mold the beliefs uh, to fit in. I mean, for instance, in the, in the tw early 20th century, you have Alfred North Whitehead, who went to America uh, went to Harvard, and he developed process theology, which sees God as evolving, and also a God who's not distant, but who's there with us. So when Anne Frank is in Bergen-Belsen dying of uh, typhoid, God is there with her while she suffers. But also God is there when her diary gets so widely disseminated and such a, a what should I say, an inspiration for good young people. So Whitehead, I think, had picked up on the Darwinian changes in things, but at the same time wanted to blend this with Christianity. Now, a lot of people wouldn't buy into what Whitehead did, but as I say, a lot of people would have said, yes, even if I don't buy into that, I do see that Darwin's ideas are not opposed to religion or to post, let's say, to uh, the Bible, Christianity, uh, that, but let's now start to work on how they do, really, how they do fit together. I mean, obviously, Christians at some point had to face up to the fact that the earth is not the center of the universe, but just a, a small planet going around a sun in a very large galaxy. <clears throat> so they, they had to learn to live with this so they learn to live with evolution. But as I say, the really good solution is not to live with it, but to welcome it and see what you can do, as it were, positively with the idea. And I think a lot, a lot of Christians felt very much that way. And again, they would say that today. I mean, I'm quite sure if you ask the Archbishop of Canterbury or the Pope, I mean, they, they certainly aren't going to be very, very friendly towards new atheists like Richard Dawkins. But they're certainly not. <laughs> they're certainly not going to be against the head of the biology department at Oxford or at Harvard. So, as I say, it's and that God Almighty, that's what makes it all so damned interesting. I mean, if it were just facts, 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 yeah, you know, it'd be like you know spending your life looking at shopping lists. Oh my goodness, I think they've forgotten to put in you know uh, HP source. Add that to the list. I mean, really. I mean, how dull can it get? And as I say, how dull. But the, the thing is, these issues of science and religion, like a lot, I mean, I'm not saying that's a unique, only that in the intellectual world is interesting. But what I am saying is that is, I think, 
very characteristic of the intellectual world, that these problems not only can be important, but they can be just so interesting. I mean, the only thing I would want to say, and I think I'm a part of a growing number, is that people like philosophers need to get off their bums and go out into the world and tell people about it. That's why I mean, that's why I'm talking to you. Uh, I think there's too much of only talking to themselves. Well, of course, the thing is, as we know, at universities, humanities are under great attack. You know, all they want is STEM. And uh, oh, who needs philosophy? Well, when the other university I was at, the Canadian one, had a veterinary college. And at one point, the administration wanted to do something not very favorable to philosophy. I think they, they wanted to cut us down. And in Senate, one vet or one scientist after another got up and said, no, don't touch the philosophy department. They are so helpful. These days we have all these committees on ethics, ethics of dealing with animals and those sort of things. And there's always a philosopher who joins this group, who you know gives the, his or her time to the group and who adds so much to the discussion. So don't touch philosophers. And I, that, I, that's why I feel very strongly about that. And that is why I'm getting up early in the morning and I'm keeping you from, you know, having your cup of cocoa and going to bed. And uh, but why? Because I think what we're doing is tremendously important. I think what we're doing is as important as me writing another book. Well, not mm. quite, but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. And that's part of the reason we have this new books network to to give more, uh, to, 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 to express these great ideas, to, to promote and, and spread these great ideas so that more and more people can hear about them. And I couldn't agree with you more on what you said about um, humanities. Mm. Professor Michael Roos, thank you very, very much for talking with us on New Books Network. I really, really enjoyed listening to you, uh, and, I, and I'm definitely getting in touch with you again to talk about history of atheism soon. Okay, I'm very glad to do that. But I've got other topics to talk about as well, so let's, let's go to atheism next, shall we? <laughs> thank you. Okay, goodbye. Bye.